1: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we indeed begin with breaking news. Two sources present at the Tuesday deposition of White House National Security Council staffer Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman tell me that Vindman told congressional investigators that he became convinced that President Trump personally was ordering the withholding of $400 million in aid for Ukraine as a way of forcing Ukrainian President Zelensky to publicly announce an investigation into the Bidens. Vindman said the existence of a quid pro quo had been clear to him by July 10th. That's when U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, something of a point man on the Ukraine situation, told Ukrainian officials in a meeting at the White House that they would need to deliver, quote, specific investigations in order to secure the White House meeting they so desired with President Trump. Now, that's according to Vindman's opening statement that was reported yesterday. But... The fact that the $400 million in aid, including that desperately needed military assistance to beat back the Russians, that was also being used by the president, that didn't become clear until the next month, Vindman testified yesterday. And uh, after then National Security Advisor John Bolton told Vindman to prepare a decision memo by August 15th for Bolton and other senior administration officials to present as a Trump administration-wide interagency argument to President Trump to release the assistant funds to Ukraine as soon as possible. Vindman wrote that memo, wrote that argument, and a day later, Bolton, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Secretary of Defense Mike Esper, and other national security officials met with President Trump at his resort in Bedminster. After they met in Bedminster, Vindman learned that President Trump was still refusing to allow those funds to go to Ukraine. And that convinced Lieutenant Colonel Vindman that President Trump was still waiting for the, quote, deliverable, as Bill Taylor, the top diplomat in Ukraine, referred to it in his deposition, the deliverable, the announcement of an investigation into the Bidens that Ukrainian officials needed to deliver in order to get the money they so desperately needed. Our team of reporters is on the story, and we have some even more breaking news right now. John Bolton has been officially asked to testify for the impeachment inquiry. Caitlin Collins, tell us about that.
3: Yeah, he's been asked to testify next week on November the 7th. House impeachment investigators have invited the former national security advisor who has been famously silent as all of this is ramped up. So the issues surrounding, of course, this call, a call that John Bolton was not on, but that his deputy instead was on someone who is in Um, kind of a bind of his own, deciding whether or not he's going to appear. So right now, we don't know if John Bolton is going to appear. They have not issued a subpoena for him to appear yet. But right now, that is an invitation that has been made. And the question is, is he going to take them up on it? And if he does, what does he say? That would be incredibly significant for all of this, because, of course, we've seen all of these people going and testifying on Capitol Hill. Not a lot of them have had interactions directly with President Trump. John Bolton, of course, is someone who is in the Oval Office almost every day. And while he and the president soured in their relationship at the end, he knows a lot because he was at the center of this fight over this military aid with Mick Mulvaney. He's not the only one, though. There have been two other big invitations. That's for John Eisenberg, who is the lawyer for the National Security Council, who has also found himself in the middle of this because he was someone who several staffers who had issues with the president's July phone call went and spoke with him about. He's also another person that uh, he and the National Security Council legal team, the White House has pinned the blame on for moving that transcript of the president's call to that highly secure system.
1: Rough transcript. Yes, rough (laughs)
3: transcript. Not exact, as we have since learned from that testimony yesterday. And there's one more, Michael Ellis, that is his deputy there, who, of course, has come under the spotlight of his own at times because he used to work for the House Intelligence Committee. When Nunes was in charge of it, he was facing accusations about letting the White House review classified information. So those are three big asks. We're waiting to see what it is they say.
1: Exactly. Uh, And and, uh, Bolton has a lot to contribute. I suspect he's not going to testify unless he's subpoenaed. Um, But let's talk about uh, what Vindman said. Because Mm -hmm. Vindman said yesterday in his deposition, CNN has just broken this news, Uh, that he became convinced uh, that this aid, $400 million, much of it was military aid for Ukraine, that President Trump was withholding it until the Ukrainians publicly announced uh, that the Bidens were going to be investigated. Uh, And a lot of this is wrapped up in this August memo, You have more reporting on that August memo, which was basically making the argument to the President Trump, we need to release these funds.
4: Well, look, I think one of the the issues here is that the administration has sort of said there were all these legitimate reasons for why the president was not releasing this money. And as you are reporting, and Kylie has done a lot of great reporting on this, there actually was a push to get the president to sign on the dotted line and release the money in August. And it came from some of the top administration officials that... Since then, the White House has pinned the blame on for holding back this money. So we've seen as witness and after witness goes before the impeachment investigators, this narrative that the White House and the Office of Management and Budget tried to create around this freeze has really begun to crumble. And it seems more and more like this decision to freeze the money and then to release the money rested solely on the whims of President Trump.
1: And Kylie, you cover the State Department for us. You're reporting uh, that the president's decision in June to freeze these funds unnerved a lot of senior administration officials.
5: Yeah, so we're hearing today from one of the State Department officials who was involved in U.S.-Ukraine policy quite directly. She was one of the assistants to Kurt Volker. And she is telling lawmakers today, according to her prepared testimony, her opening remarks that we obtained, that she was on that July 18th interagency discussion in which the announcement was made that there was going to be this hold on this security assistance. And during that phone call, they said that it was at the direction of President Trump. This gets back to the heart of what Sarah was just saying, is that, you know, the OMB was announcing that there was the hold. We're told that it was OMB who was doing the review, that uh, the Pentagon was also doing a review. But ultimately, day one, they were told that it was President Trump who was directing the hold. And Catherine Croft is someone who knows Ukraine well. She know that she knew that Rudy Giuliani was intimately involved in this smear campaign against Ambassador Yovanovitch, the former U.S. ambassador there. So the U.S. State Department, officials were very concerned when they first heard about this hold and really had questions about the legitimacy of it.
1: And uh, Sarah, you've previously reported about six sources telling CNN that Republican Senator Rob Portman, a Republican of Ohio, made one last pitch to President Trump in the September 11th phone call urging him to release these funds.
4: That's right. You know, this is a point where basically everyone else in the administration is saying, OK, it's time to release this money. The president still won't budge. Rob Portman decides he's going to take one more go at it. He calls the president and essentially says, if you don't get this money out the door essentially now, it's going to go away because the fiscal year is ending and then you're going to have a potentially even bigger problem on your hands. And, you know, they they hung up the call and the president really surprised everyone around him, everyone in Washington and even everyone in Ukraine because he decided after that call that he was going to release the money. Now, we don't know ultimately if Rob Portman's pitch was the one that put the president over the edge or if it was this mounting pressure that he was getting from lawmakers and even within his own administration. But we do know that he released the money after that. And this is something impeachment investigators very much want the answer
1: to. It's also possible that the president, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Caitlin, had heard about this whistleblower uh, and the fact that Uh, He was he or she had lodged a complaint, was expressing concerns about this rogue Ukraine policy and the fact that military aid and other aid was being held up to force this investigation of the Biden's. We don't know when President Trump learned about this.
3: No, we don't know. There's still a lot of mystery surrounding the timeline exactly when it comes to that. But we do know that this person before going and filing this complaint went to an attorney beforehand and talked about this, talked about their concern, the concern that they had heard from people before they went and filed this complaint. So there is a chance that the White House uh, was what was more aware than we have initially believed, whether the president was aware. Where that's really the question, but also this has really been something that has kind of consumed the president so far. He talks about it constantly, all the time, wanting to know the identity of this whistleblower because he believes it's just someone who has uh, essentially a bone to pick with him, and those are really his questions that have focused on the identity of the whistleblower.
1: And and let me just ask you uh, briefly. Uh, there is this huge campaign to smear Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who, who fought for the United States as an American citizen, uh, has shrapnel because he was still in his body because he was hit by an IED when he was in combat operations for the U.S. in Iraq, going after him as a dual citizen, going after him as like some sort of covert agent for Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Is there, is there anybody in the White House who's concerned like, boy, this really looks bad? Even Liz Cheney is saying that this is shameful
3: that was something everyone was paying attention to in the white house we talked to several people about it yesterday because it wasn't just liz cheney she was the first and a lot of people were surprised that she came out so forcefully about that but also john thune and mitch mcconnell later on talking about these criticisms of someone who was just simply uh they believe telling what happened in his position in that role of course he is incredibly sensitive for the white house because he is the first person to testify that was actually on that call Mm -hmm. that's why you saw people trying to discredit him even though he is someone who has served in the military, was wounded and Essentially, people in the White House have said they didn't think that was a great
1: idea. My sources say that he reported to work today at the National Security Council, even after all of this. All right. Thanks, one and all, for being here uh, and reporting on all this. There's a ton going on today. Right now, another Foreign Service officer is testifying before House investigators. This is lawmakers are right now debating impeachment inquiry rules ahead of a full House vote tomorrow. Lots of debate about that. And then on the other side of the country, winds more than 70 miles per hour, fueling multiple fires across California. We're going to go live yeah, there gotcha. as well. Stay with us. And we're back with the politics lead. Right now, the House Rules Committee is debating the House resolution the Democrats introduced that will be voted on tomorrow, which will outline the process of the impeachment inquiry going forward. This comes as a source tells CNN that a star witness for House Democrats is willing to return to Capitol Hill and testify in public. That's Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine. He delivered some of the most damning testimony yet, as did Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman yesterday. And today, two more witnesses are giving their accounts behind closed doors. As CNN's Sunland Surfati reports, their testimonies could back up damaging depositions already on the record.
6: Two new witnesses testifying on Capitol Hill today in the House Democrats' intensifying impeachment probe. Christopher Anderson, aide to former Special Envoy for Ukraine, Kurt Volker, speaking to lawmakers behind closed doors telling lawmakers about the concerns voiced by former National Security Advisor John Bolton over Rudy Giuliani's shadow Ukraine operation. Anderson, according to his opening statement obtained by CNN, saying Bolton cautioned Mr. Giuliani was a key voice with the president on Ukraine, which could be an obstacle to increased White House engagement. Katherine Croft, a State Department Special Advisor for Ukraine, also appearing today corroborating the testimony the committees have heard from other witnesses about the push to oust the former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Meantime, the fallout continues from the explosive testimony on Capitol Hill Tuesday of Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the National Security Council's top Ukraine expert. Vindman was on the now famous July 25th call between President Trump and the Ukrainian president, the same call President Trump refers to as perfect.
7: You take a look at that call. It was perfect.
6: But Min's testimony directly contradicting President Trump's public description of the transcript released by the White House.
7: But I had a transcript done by very, very talented people, word for word, comma for comma, done by people that do it for a living. I, we had an exact transcript.
6: President Trump touting over and over again that it was an exact transcript of the phone call. The White House in September saying the ellipses that showed up did not represent missing words or phrases, but not so, says Vindman, who told lawmakers what the White House released was not exact and had at least two parts omitted, a reference to a Joe Biden tape and a specific mention of Burisma, the company where Biden's son Hunter was on the board. Burisma, according to Vindman, appearing in the transcript as just the company. Meantime, back on Bill Taylor being willing to publicly testify up here on Capitol Hill. Sources say that an official request has not been yet made by the committees. But certainly, uh, Jake, many Democrats up here on Capitol Hill would think he would really make an ideal first witness as this uh, inquiry enters into its next more public phase. Jake.
1: All right. silence are fighting on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Uh, let's chew over all this with our experts, uh, Democrats believe that Bill Taylor is going to be an unassailable uh, witness. Democratic Congresswoman Jackie Speier, uh, who's on the House Intelligence Committee, said, quote, he's rock solid, detailed note taker, unimpeachable, 50 years given to his country, doesn't get much more top gun than that. Uh, But Mary Catherine, I mean, you and I might think it's unassailable, but the White House and the president have been assailing him. I mean, President Trump called him a never Trumper, no evidence that he is, and then said never Trumpers are human scum. I mean, they've They've been going after him.
8: I mean, they, yes, they will attempt to assail him. Uh, the Democrats have the advantage right at the moment of the fact that uh, both Taylor and Venman, as far as I can tell, A, seem to have very solid backgrounds and reputations. But B, Trump has a way of making his adversaries and anyone who speaks up against him occasionally or frequently act as insane and erratic as he does. Mm -hmm. um, These two have yet to shift themselves and act openly partisan or um, mess up in public. And so that is giving them credibility. And if they continue to do that, then it will be a problem for Trump. But
2: I think so. My theory on this, and I've talked to folks on the Hill and they've verified that the whole strategy here, right, is shift as a former federal prosecutor. he is building this case brick by brick. And as we've gone along, it has gotten more damning, more evidence, more... um, and the whole goal was that when we get to the public part, that will, it's intentionally going to seem like this is the worst of the worst for the president. So they can keep trying to assail. But the point is, the evidence is building and building. And even though we haven't heard from those Republicans who are sitting in those same hearings, they know what these people have said in private. They know the damage that could be done when they get a chance to talk in public. And so at some point, you sus- I would suspect they're going to have to figure out, are they really going to want to go take this public? I mean, mm. the Republicans, or are they going to try to do a deal with, the, with Trump?
1: Now, One of the things that Vindman uh, testified uh, yesterday was that there were parts of the conversation that were not included in the rough transcript. Um, take a listen to President Trump earlier this month. He was talking about the rough transcript and how it exonerates him.
7: This is an exact word-for-word transcript of the conversation, right? What? Taken by very talented stenographers. So that's not
1: true. We <laughs> no. knew it at the time it was not true, and now we know that parts uh, were left out, parts that Vindman have said were not necessarily uh, left out nefariously, but he did try to get put back in and was not able to do.
9: Right, that he tried to make these key corrections on multiple times, and that on multiple times they were – some got inserted and then some didn't. Um, but – you know, one of the big key pieces of moving forward uh, for Democrats and back to the whole element of public testimony and Taylor is that they feel as though they don't necessarily need everyone to testify publicly. So uh, being able to land someone like Taylor in a public testimony, they will be pretty happy with that. Uh, And then maybe one or two others, because they don't want this to drag out longer than it needs to. And they do want to start getting to those uh, as well as having Uh, private depositions at the same time.
1: And, and Caitlin, a source says that Vindman testified it was uh, this portion where President Trump mentions the tapes of Biden where stuff was left out uh, about burisma and investigations. Biden went around. This is Trump in the part of the uh, rough transcript that was released. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So if you can look into it, dot, 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 you see the uh, the ellipses highlighted there. It sounds horrible to me. Um, say, the, the White House originally said that that was just because the conversation had trailed off, but that's apparently not true.
3: And this is the contradiction that needs to be explained. Because when this transcript came out and you saw those dot, dot, dots, people asked, was something there? What happened? They said, no, it was just where there was a pause in the conversation, someone trailed off. They said if there had been words left out, there would have been brackets in place. That was the White House who put that out. And even though on the transcript, it says this is not a verbatim transcript, it did say that. And while our reporting so far has shown that Vindman did not testify that there was some kind of sinister motive behind why they of left out, yeah. there have been questions about why. Exactly. And some people have speculated that potentially is because this was that transcript that was moved so quickly to that secure system. It took about a, a few matter of days based on what our sources have told us. So those are the questions for the White House to explain why did they say that there actually were words. Well, that were but, but that's and also, also to, not to s- how the process works.
8: Work. But also to speak to the, the idea that there is no nefarious motive, the rough transcript as it existed was damning. Yes. <laughs> so the
1: president didn't think so. I also, know, but, like,
8: but I think the cover up did not
1: succeed. So everyone stick around. we got a lot more to talk about. We have to uh, sneak in a quick break. The powder keg before the call. New details today about the explosive Ukraine meeting at the White House and why it could be the key moment to the impeachment probe. Stay with us. The politics lead now, while much of the impeachment inquiry so far has been focused on President Trump's now infamous July 25th phone call with Ukraine's President Zelensky, we're now getting a much clearer picture about the fight within the Trump administration about Ukraine policy. CNN Sarah Murray explains it, it all stems from a July 10th meeting where top national security advisors to President Trump confronted one another about their disagreements in front of Ukrainian officials visiting the White House.
4: Weeks ahead of President Trump's controversial July 25th phone call with the Ukrainian president that sparked the impeachment inquiry, the rift over Ukraine spilled out in a series of White House meetings. On July 10th, Ukraine's Secretary of National Security and Defense Council traveled to Washington to meet with then-National Security Advisor John Bolton, then-Special Envoy to Ukraine Kurt Volker, Ambassador to the EU Gordon Sunlin, and Energy Secretary Rick Perry. U.S. career national security officials, who are experts on Ukraine and Russia, Fiona Hill, and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vidman were also there. In public, it was all smiles. Perry tweeted a picture of the delegation. The Americans heaped praise on their Ukrainian counterparts, tweeting, Great discussion. Good teamwork. We stand with Ukraine. Privately, though, things were going sour. The Ukrainians were angling for an in-person meeting between newly elected President Zelensky and President Trump. An important sign of solidarity between the U.S. and Ukraine as the country continued to face threats from Russia. Ambassador Sundland started to speak about Ukraine delivering specific investigations in order to secure the meeting with the president, at which time Ambassador Bolton cut the meeting short. Vindman, the White House's expert on Ukraine, testified Tuesday.
0: I want to thank Colonel Vindman for his courage in coming forward.
4: After Bolton cut off the meeting, there was another meeting where Sondland talked with the Ukrainians and pressed once again for the political investigations Trump was demanding. Vinman testified, Ambassador Sundland emphasized the importance that Ukraine deliver the investigations into the 2016 election, the Bidens, and Burisma. Then Vinman and Hill confronted Sundland. I stated to Ambassador Sondland that his statements were inappropriate, that the request to investigate Biden and his son had nothing to do with national security, and that such investigations were not something the NSC was going to get involved in or push, Vindman testified. Dr. Hill then entered the room and asserted to Ambassador Sondland that his statements were inappropriate.
10: He heard Ambassador Sondland tell the Ukrainians that to get a White House meeting that they needed to deliver on investigations into Vice President biden that anderson is a this for that in other words a quid pro quo
4: but sunland offered investigators a different version of events testifying if ambassador bolton dr hill or others harbored any misgivings about the propriety of what we were doing they never shared those misgivings with me then or later he also said he was not aware that burisma the ukrainian energy company hunter biden served on the board of was connected to the bidens until much later this is Now, after all of this went down, John Bolton reportedly told Fiona Hill he didn't want to be part of whatever drug deal Gordon Sondland and acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney were cooking up. Now, impeachment committees say they are ready to hear from John Bolton. They want to speak to him next week. Jake.
1: I'm guessing he didn't mean drug deal as a compliment. Sarah Murray, uh, thanks so much. Uh, Caitlin, so National Security Advisor fired National Security Advisor John Bolton, although he says he resigned, we should point out. He holds a lot of cards here, and now he's been invited to testify.
3: Yeah, scorned might be the more appropriate word for him. That's what people are going to be watching, because, of course, he played a direct role in all of this. He was at the center of this fight, pushing for the aid to be released, locked in this feud with Mick Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, which we didn't understand at the time. As far as whether or not he's going to show up, keep in mind he is the same same attorney as his deputy, Charlie Kupperman, who took over when he was fired slash resigned. And that attorney has filed this lawsuit, essentially asking a court to rule whether or not he has to show up, ignoring the White House's mandate that they defy it and don't show up. We're still waiting on a ruling on that. So maybe Bolton will follow that path.
1: And the fact that this, this meeting took place in July, right. according to Vinman, where we now know... Ukrainians were told, according to Sondland, if you if you go by Vindman's testimony, uh, if you want this meeting at the White House, you have to do these investigations. That's pretty much a di- direct assertion of a quid pro quo or, or, or alleged extortion, even right to the Ukrainians.
8: Yeah, and there is distance between those two. I assume we'll hear from someone again and get more questions for him. Um, and I, who knows what will happen with Bolton? Hell hath no fury like a power stash scorned. You know, like he might show up, really.
1: I've never heard that one before.
8: That's a, it's a, it's a famous
1: quote. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a lesser, it's a lesser known aphorism. Um, <laughs> so, Karen, here's how the Washington Post described it. Quote, the West Wing meetings on July 10th increasingly appear to mark the moment of detonation of the Ukraine crisis inside the White House. Though by then, Bolton, Vindman, then White House, where Russia advisor Fiona Hill and others had become suspicious Mm -hmm. that Trump was pursuing a secret uh, uh, agenda. And then, look, maybe it's entirely unrelated, but Fiona Hill and Mm. and John Bolton didn't last that much longer in the administration. I'm
2: sure that was totally a coincidence. You know, here's what's so important about that Washington Post story. In addition to the details that we learned from that story and we're hearing today, again, this narrative is starting to lay itself out, right? We now know... it. July 25th, which we always sort of knew, wasn't the only time this conversation was had was had. Now we know there were other meetings. Now we know about what was happening on July 10th. It is reasonable to assume that there was potentially prior to that there were more there was more conversation. It's not it didn't just occur to someone, you know, one day, hey, let's do this. You have to suspect that he would have Trump. I mean, would have had this idea in his head right from the time they got a new Uh, a prime minister in Ukraine. And and
1: what's the defense of this? What are people, Republicans on the Hill, Republicans in the White House, saying, other than, you know, attacking those who are, you know, making these allegations Mm -hmm. and depositions, impugning their, their patriotism, et cetera, how do you defend the fact that Gordon Sondland, the president's point man on Ukraine, the shadow Ukraine policy, is stating specifically, according to Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, There needs to be a quid pro quo
9: whenever they've been faced with that question or they've been asked, look, there there's evidence piling up that is showing that there were quid pro quos, multiple ones. That's what Taylor testified to. And then Republicans say that's not a quid pro quo. I don't see a quid pro quo in that. Um, or they just continue to attack the democratic process, the process that Democrats are using. They don't really dive into the substance, and they say that they believe that the president has done it, hasn't done anything wrong, uh, and, and they deflect uh, consistently. And or they say that Democrats need to bring this out into the public, and we'll see whether or not their arguments hold once yeah. this moves
8: into yeah, public the, the process. Argument becomes moot. It was a it was an easier argument to make for a while, and it was sort of a play. So you don't have to deal with the substance as much. Um,
2: But once it comes out in public, you'll have to Republicans will have to deal with that. And those talking points have to change with no help from Trump, because there is no unlike we had in the Clinton administration where we did have a war room. We were proud of it. We had we had a message that went out. They will be having to survive by tweet. So they don't they're not even going to have a strategy. They're going to have to make sense of what they are going to say not with any coordination with the White House, because who knows what's in Trump's head. So
1: Jonah Goldberg, uh, ha- who, who writes for The Dispatch and has also written for National Review, uh, wrote a piece basically saying what President Trump needs to do is what President Clinton did, which is apologize. And then that, I, I, well, that's, you're way ahead of me. You're way ahead of me, okay. Kaylin. Apologize, because if the president said, look, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have done it, you know, whatever. I'm not saying, this is Jonah's argument. <laughs> But the reason you're making these uh, expressions that I don't know if you've ever (laughs) seen on TV is because he he just doesn't do that, President Trump.
3: The president doesn't apologize, and he famously is proud of the fact that he doesn't apologize. I mean, you can count on one hand, since he's entered this political arena that he was in right before he became president, he's not someone who apologizes. The one time he famously did apologize was over the Access Hollywood tape, something he later took back. He told people he regretted and then said he didn't believe it was his voice. On that tape, <laughs> so essentially, this isn't this is not how the president operates. So the idea that he would do that is just—it's not his mentality. He thinks that apologizing is a sign of weakness. That if you do, it, in a sense, is an admission of guilt. And I think the Republican view, the White House view, is that even if he did apologize, it wouldn't change things—the dynamic with Democrats. So they wouldn't really see the right. point
9: of the president doing but it. I Might mean,
1: not, not change public opinion?
9: Potentially, although. Um, you know, it appears as though a a lot of the public feels that this investigation should go on, whether or not he should be impeached. So that will I mean, Democrats have the wind at their backs. The train has left the station, as Caitlin said. And I think that there's nothing that's going to stop them from pulling on the threads.
1: All right, everyone, stick around. We've got more to talk about CNN. Just feet from the flames as hurricane force winds fuel multiple fires erupting across California. Stay with us. Breaking news in our national lead. Hurricane force winds ravaging the state of California, spreading those wildfires, one getting stunningly close to the Reagan presidential library. More than 26 million people are are under red flag warnings today. CNN's Bill Weir joins me now live. And Bill, what's happening on the ground where you are?
10: Well, if we use uh, war as a metaphor for fighting this fire, it is maddening. Uh, There are skirmishes and surprise attacks and lulls where you have to play defense. This is where we are right now, Jake. On the other side of that hill is the Reagan Library and Museum. I think we have some uh, film from this morning. We got there maybe an hour after the fire had started near Easy Road in Simi Valley, That's the Easy Fire, and it was stunning to see the speed of this thing. You couldn't outrun this fire if you tried. Uh, Fortunately, that building was built specifically to survive earthquakes and fire. It got its closest test today. There is smoke inside the atrium where the big Air Force 1 jet is. So they they're taping shut every every crease and every door to try to save that stuff. But luckily, uh, all the precious memoirs there are safe. But what a metaphor for for the new California Jake when since reagan was governor of this state wildfire season has expanded by two and a half months the hots are getting hotter and we're seeing it in real time and it really feels like there's a sea change in the conversation the way people are talking about the fact this is not going to get better the predictions are it's going to get much much worse so the systems power systems first responders uh alert systems all of those things are going to have to move into this uh new normal but right now we're sort of watching as these teams leapfrog each other. Over here, you have a citrus grove where they're using their irrigation tanks to try to save as much of those fruit trees there. All these iconic symbols from the oranges in the south to the wine grapes up in the north, from the Getty Center Museum to LeBron James's house, symbols that more than anywhere else, uh, it seems like this climate crisis is touching people of all classes. Jake. And Bill, when are the winds expected to die down? We've got some Uh, Probably by tomorrow morning, maybe late tonight. Uh, But this is like a supercharged red flag warning they have because it's not just the winds, it's not just the 60 mile an hour winds, but it's the humidity is so low and this fuel is just, oh, it's just tinder dry. And thus it's all hands on deck. In addition to the CAL FIRE teams and guys from other counties, Leo County Fire and Rescue, uh, we've seen uh, big brigades of prisoners Uh, controversial thing. They've been doing it here since World War II where the inmates make about $2 a day to come out and set fire lines. They get an extra dollar a day if they actually are fighting active flames, Jake.
1: All right, Bill Weir, thank you so much. Stay safe, my friend. The U.S. government promising to take care of Gold Star families after their loved ones are killed fighting for this country. But we're going to talk to one widow who says they could be doing a lot more. Stay with us. International lead, when a U.S. service member is killed in the line of duty, the U.S. government promises to take care of his or her family with a monthly payment. That Gold Star family is also then eligible to receive part of an insurance plan if they have been paying into it. But there's a catch. For every dollar that the grieving family receives from one plan, the U.S. government holds back a dollar from the other. It's called the widow's tax. And right now, Congress could end it, though it's not clear if they will. Joining me now to talk about it, Democratic Senator Doug Jones of Alabama. He's a lead sponsor of legislation to repeal the widow's tax. We also have with us a, an old friend of mine, Gold Star wife, Kristen Fenty, who her husband, Army Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Fenty, was killed in action in Afghanistan in 2006. Uh, Kristen, it's great to see you again. Um, for people who may not have heard of the widow's tax before, explain how this affects your family, you and your daughter.
11: Okay. Um, my husband served 20 years in the U.S. military and had earned a retirement, but was not retired. Um, He was killed in Afghanistan, and in the days following his death, in fact, before he was buried, I was asked to make a selection about how I would receive my daughter's benefit, uh, receive the survivor benefit attached to his retirement. And it was rather confusing to me. In fact, when they said, we're here to discuss survivor issues, my heart leapt because, lef, leapt because I thought they meant yeah. there were survivors, yeah. um, but no. Um, it was the survivor benefits. And essentially, um, my husband's benefit is offset by $1,319 a month. I had the choice to take the benefit in my name for my life with an offset or take it in my daughter's name until she reached the age of majority or graduated from college. Um, I actually did a break-even analysis and I think the break-even for me because my husband had been in so long and earned a higher retirement, was like age 72. But there were VSOs who said to me, Kristen, there's strong legislation on the Hill. It's going to pass in this session. Take the benefit in your daughter's name. It will revert to your name and you'll have it for life.
1: You were told this in 2006, the legislation. In will, 2006. And, and, and here's the thing. For 18 years, people have been trying to get yes. legislation like the kind you have introduced, passed into law, and it hasn't happened. Why do you think this time it might?
7: I think this time, because we've got overwhelming bipartisan support, there's 76 co-sponsors in the Senate, three-fourths of the United States Senate, 381 in the House. It was passed and put in as part of the uh, House National Defense Authorization. It's in conference now. Uh, Last week, a couple weeks ago, we passed a resolution in the Senate. That passed 94 to nothing, instructing the folks in the Senate to put it in the NDAA. It would have passed 100 to nothing, but I got a few folks out running around in Iowa and New Hampshire. But it has got overwhelming support. Everybody, I think now, Jake, recognizes that for 40 years, we have neglected our duty and our obligation to the very people that served us and gave us their all.
1: And, and let's point out that one of the reasons you guys are here right now is because we want uh, there to be awareness for people who Absolutely. are working behind closed doors on this uh, national defense bill that that this is an issue that could be resolved. For people out there who don't understand, Kristen, how, how what do you wish they they understood about this? That people people don't know about the widow's tax. What do they need to know?
11: Well, they need to know that it's an earned and purchase benefit. It's earned through years of service and deferred compensation contributions while on active duty and post retirement retirees can elect to participate in an insurance plan where they pay a premium to ensure that the retirement benefit be provide a survivor annuity to their families
1: in other words this isn't free goodies that you want from the federal government this is stuff that you and your husband earn
11: it's earned and it's purchased um and it's being offset purely because our spouses died as the result of service Um, the benefit that is paid to survivors for the loss of their spouses in service is paid in order to hold the government harmless. It's an insult that we are being asked then to forfeit a portion of our survivor benefit. We're not asked, we're told that yeah. we will. Um, and in essence, our dead spouses purchased their own indemnity payment.
1: And and just so people, people don't know your story unless they've read, read the outpost in which I tell your story, but like, Your husband, your late husband, Joe, he never even got to meet your daughter because he was so dedicated to serving and service. He was going to come home. You were pregnant when he left and he never met your little girl. Correct. Mm -hmm. Um, Senator Jones, critics say uh, that the cost is the barrier uh, for getting this passed. It has an uh, estimated price tag of five point seven billion dollars over 10 years. Right. What's your response to that? Well,
7: This is their money. It's it's this is money that's been paid for. Remember, you know what Kristen said is very important. It's in earned, but it's also paid for. And then when they offset these two buckets, they're getting not getting the money that they've paid into the Department of Defense. It is an absolute outrage. I mean, we, I, I am hoping that finally Congress will wake up. You know, for years, Congress sits around and then we talk about, we go to Memorial Day uh, celebrations, we go to Veterans Day celebrations, and we talk about our, our devotion to servicemen and women. But yet, this is happening for 40 years. It's time, I think, that Congress... Puts its money where its mouth so is. So don't just say represent. thank you
1: for your service. No. Thank you for your sacrifice.
7: Let's, let's put it into action, and we can do it with this uh, widow's tax elimination.
1: Kristen Fanti, Senator Doug Jones, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time here thank today. You, uh Let's hope the people were listening. Any moment, we could get the declassified video of the Baghdadi raid. That's next. Any moment, the Pentagon is going to release new video of that raid that led to the death of ISIS leader... Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the operational commander, is briefing reporters. That's coming up. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks so much for watching. We will see you tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level